If you've never been around um, our church during this time, uh, man, let me just tell you, it's an it's a incredible time uh, to be a part of, of some of the things that God's doing here because we pause kind of from all of our other, um, what I would say, kind of normal routines in the Sunday morning, I think, and we, we come to this, this time of Advent, this season of Advent, uh, and it may, you know, some of you grew up in different faith traditions. Uh, it, it may just sound different to you. It may look different to you. Um, some of you grew up Baptist and you've never seen any Baptist church celebrate Advent. We intentionally do this because it, it is a good interruption for us. It helps us and makes us focus um, on these four themes of Advent. Hope today, uh, peace, joy, and love. Those four themes. And um, so today we're going to light the candle of hope. We do so knowing that God has given us a great reason for hope. One of the things that's true about this season is we love, uh, at least most of us, we love the music. Anybody with me? Christmas songs, you love that? Did anybody start their Christmas music playing before Thanksgiving? Yes. How many of you are Christmas music I don't start before Thanksgiving people? How many of you are, oh yes, crank it up, come, like November the 1st, let's get this thing. Anybody with me on that? I could start it early as well. In fact, I have been known to press the wrong button on our little radio and off it starts playing from Pandora or whatever. Uh, it, it's true. We love Christmas music. We love singing. We were singing yesterday as we were setting stuff up. And um, the series that I want to preach during this Advent season really focuses around uh, four songs that we find in the scripture. And today I want to look at the one that Zechariah, um, which it's a, it's a mouthful there, but the one Zechariah sang at the birth of John the Baptist. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to be in the first chapter of Luke at the end of that chapter, Luke chapter one, verses 67, 67 and following. And again, we're thinking along this line of hope. I wanted to um, give you the single statement of today. Um, try to boil the sermon down to, you know, kind of a phrase that we can all lock onto. And here's the phrase for today, that God's faithfulness fuels our hope. God's faithfulness fuels our hope. And if we could, uh, in fact, this would actually probably encourage me for just a minute here. Can we, can we just say that together? We'll just say, read what's on the screen. His faithfulness fuels our hope. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. His faithfulness fuels our hope. I like that. So one more time. You ready? His faithfulness fuels our hope. There is a, there is a kind of hope that is wishful thinking. Gee, I hope that the such and such team wins today, or I hope, uh, you know, if you're uh, a University of Houston fan, they hire a good coach, or I hope, you know, there's this kind of wishful thinking uh, thing that, that happens. I hope I get uh, this particular thing for Christmas. I hope that uh, he looks my way, she looks my way. I hope, wishful thinking. But then there's, the, there's this biblical kind of hope, the kind of hope that is rooted in something real, and fueled by something incredibly real, and that is both both of those. It's rooted in God's faithfulness, and it's fueled. It's fueled by God's faithfulness because hope is this kind of steady focus on the good that is to come. 
That's, if I had to wrap my heart around something and, and express it, it would be something like that. That hope is the steady focus on the good that is to come. It's not an emotion. It's a place of focus. There's all sorts of great things that come along with it, all sorts of incredible byproducts, not the least of which is when you're going through a tough time, there is a, a, a stealing of your resolve, not S-T-E-A-L, but a hardening, if you will, a stealing, a hardening of your resolve to endure the hardship because you know the good that is to come. That's what hope does for us. Um, it is, as I said, rooted in the faithfulness of God, and it fuels itself. That's what I want you to take away today. It fuels itself from the very same faithfulness. So before we get to Zechariah's song, can we look at Zechariah's story? Can we back up just a little bit to chapter 1, starting in verse 5? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. This is in the middle of verse 5 now. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. You know, even though you're doing everything right, sometimes it doesn't go right. Anybody felt that before? Verse 8. Now, while we were serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty... While he was serving as a priest, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were outside praying at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And just pause right there. I know I say this around Christmas time every year, but let's just be clear. Anytime anybody in the Bible sees an angel of the Lord, it's not, oh, look, a cherub, a harp, and blink. No, they fall down and wet themselves because they're so scared. So let's just be clear about that. When an angel of the Lord shows up, don't think you're going to come into my office and go, oh, pastor, you know, you, this is what happened. It was so wonderful. No, you're going to come in like, I cannot believe what just happened. Because that's what happens when an angel of the Lord shows up. That tells us something about the Lord, too. He's bigger than we think, mightier than we think. All right. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm old, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Did he take it as good news? Uh-uh. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. I spoke for God, but you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah goes into the temple, has this vision of the, of the angel of the Lord. I don't know how this is to be, that Elizabeth and I are going to have a, a kid. 
and he's going to be this kind of kid. Gabriel's like, okay, great. I told you, I gave you the word of the Lord, and now you're not going to be able to talk. Indeed, that's what happened. He comes out of the temple. He's like, the world's greatest mime right there. And uh, eventually, uh, they figured out that he had a vision. He goes home, um, somehow communicates to Elizabeth that this is the case. Indeed, he and Elizabeth, uh, uh, they, they conceive a child together. It's an incredible story about how God did this in their lives. And Elizabeth uh, kind of hides herself because she wants to make sure that everything kind of goes well with that, and um, then goes to visit Mary, the the um, baby that's uh, inside of Elizabeth leaps when she hears or when he hears Mary's voice. It's an incredible portion of this uh, of the text there in Luke. Um, Mary sings this beautiful song, which we'll look at uh, um, here in uh, next week uh, or in a couple of weeks, excuse me. And then Elizabeth has her son, and they go through this whole thing about let's name him Zechariah. No, we're not going to name him Zechariah. His name's John. Well, let's ask Dad. Now, Dad's these days. We don't get that choice, right? I mean, this long ago. But, 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 let's ask Dad. And Zechariah takes a pen and writes, his name is John. And then, guess what happens? His tongue is loose and he begins to speak. And that's where I want to pick up here uh, for just a second and think together um, about this whole idea of hope that God's faithfulness fuels our hope. So in verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied and said this, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Let's just pause right there because I'm going to give you three things to think about when it, terms, when it comes to God's faithfulness. They all start with P. I seem to come out that way. I didn't do that on purpose. It just happened to flow that way this week. First of all, God, God is faithful, and he's faithful to his people. Do you see that? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed what? His people. That's what he says. His people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, it says, for us in the house of his servant, David. God is faithful to his people. And it says three specific things here. And maybe one of these will just really light your heart up. Uh, but just think about what he's saying. He has visited his people. Meaning what? He has not left them alone. No matter the circumstance, no matter the, the, the miracle that you may need to occur, no matter the problem that you're facing, no matter the mountain that is in front of you, no matter the, the height of the wall that you feel like you have to climb, uh, no matter how dark or how distant, uh, no matter how much of a desert it feels like, no matter what the relationship scene is like, God has never left any of us alone. When he says to us, his people, I will never, excuse me, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Guess what? He meant that. He meant that. He has visited his people. The presence of God is fully with us. So when he says, uh, you should call Jesus, his name Emmanuel, for that means what? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He's not kidding. He's not kidding. He hasn't left them alone. God is faithful to his people. He has not left them alone. Secondly, he hasn't left them enslaved. So he says, and he's not only visited his people, but, and he came to his people, but also what? He redeemed them. 
he redeemed them. The picture here is straight out of Exodus where uh, God comes to, he looks at uh, the situation in, in Egypt and all the people are enduring, and then he grabs Moses and says, hey, let's go get those folks out of there. We need to redeem them from the hand of Pharaoh. We need to pull them out of that bondage and pull them out of that slavery. He has not left them enslaved. In fact, he has redeemed his people. Um, and I say that to some of you today who might be struggling or feeling like you're locked up, kind of shackled up or uh, enchained in some way because there are people uh, in, you know, in your life or there are circumstances in your life or there are choices that you have in your life that you feel like you can't make or consistently uh, uh, can't, can't choose otherwise under these kinds of circumstances. And that bondage, that addiction, whatever it may be, that has you locked up, it has you enslaved. And I'm here to tell you that God not only sees what's going on because he hasn't left you alone, but he also can do something about it. He has redeemed his people. When Jesus died for our sin, he didn't just die for the, the penalty of that sin, which is be enough. He also died for the power of that sin so that you and I could live in freedom. And when God comes along later in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He means that. He means that. He wants you and I to live in liberty. He has not left us enslaved. And thirdly, he has not left us hopeless. Look at verse 68, excuse me, 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, of his servant David. He has, he has not left them hopeless because he is bringing salvation to his people. He hasn't left them alone. He hasn't left them enslaved. And he hasn't left them hopeless. Do you see how God's faithfulness fuels our hope? Fuels our hope? His faithfulness to us fuels the hope that you and I have. And people hear this, and maybe you're hearing this, and you're looking at it alone and enslaved and hopeless, and maybe you're like, hey, those words actually describe my life instead of the antithesis of my life. Here's what I would say to you. Those things apply to you too. It's not just these people here. It's not just Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. It's for you and me too. He has not left you alone. He has not left you enslaved, and he has not left you hopeless, no matter what you're facing those things are true. God is faithful to his people, not just Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also to Heritage Park Baptist Church and to you, to the third row, to the fifth row. I mean, to you. He is faithful to you. Secondly, God is not only faithful to his people, he's also faithful to his promises. Look at verse 70. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So he's saying these things long ago so that you and I would realize, hey, God's, God's doing this now, okay? He is faithful to his promises. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So um, when he's faithful to his promises, the way that I broke this down was this, he's, there are no unfulfilled promises of God, none. All of the promises that he gives us are fulfilled for us, and, and, and you can count on them. You can take them to the bank. And so he says things like in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and the, from the hand of all who hate us. And, and Zechariah, no doubt, what's he thinking about? He's thinking about the Roman oppressors, right? And did God indeed save them from that? 
He delivered his people from out of that and sent them out all over the world to bring this incredible good news. For you and for me, though, our enemies aren't governmental oppressors uh, or government oppressors, but instead this kind of spiritual forces and darkness. And did, has God delivered us and saved us from those two? Yes. Yes, he has. And then he says this, he says mercy, look at verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Mercy is this Old Testament word carried over to the New Testament that has something along the lines of this steadfast affection that God has set upon his people. This steadfast affection that God has set upon his people. He did it for um, all of the people of old. You think about Abraham and David and Moses and all of this crew. And he has a steadfast affection for us that's not limited to an old covenant now, but instead is, is initiated and is, and is um, guaranteed by a new covenant of Jesus. This, the steadfast affection uh, that God has set upon you and, and me. Is not because he feels a certain way about us. It is because Jesus has died for us. The guarantee of his love for us is Christ dying on the cross for us. There are no unfulfilled promises. And then finally, that we would serve or worship him without fear. That's what he says in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That we can come before God to give him the worship that he is due, to offer the prayers uh, that we need to, to set before our Father that we could come and do this and without fear. So Hebrews talks about coming before the throne of mercy and doing so how? Boldly, boldly. We would come before God boldly that we can do so without fear. There are no unfulfilled promises. And the pushback inevitably, and heard actually a little bit about uh, that in the, in the past couple of weeks, the pushback goes something like this. Well, those promises aren't really for us. Well, um, some of the Old Testament promises are not for us. You're absolutely right. We're not the people of Israel and so forth. But the fact that God was faithful to those promises fuels our hope in that he will continue to be faithful to his promises. You understand that, right? If he was faithful to those people in those times, he will be faithful to us in these times. If he was true to his word in those moments, he'll be true to his word in these moments. So, I mean, the, the principle still applies, right? Because God is faithful, that fuels our hope. That fuels our hope. The second version of the pushback, though, it gets a lot more personal. And frankly, this is where most people run that they, you know, hey, my circumstances are different. And I don't expect God to keep his promises in my circumstances. Like in light of the things that I'm facing, I, I, in, light of, in light of the things that are going on in my life, I don't, I don't really expect God. I mean, it's not that he can't. I, I would never say that he can't. I just don't expect him to. You know, because my circumstances are hard. So I got to thinking about that this week, and I, and I got to thinking about how many of the promises of God given to the Old Testament saints were delivered in the midst of hard circumstances. And I just listed a few. Can we do this together? There, there are no determining circumstances to the promises of God. What do I mean by that? The promises are true no matter what our circumstances are. So let's just roll, that, roll this out a little bit. He mentions here uh, in, in verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What oath did he swear to their father Abraham? 
that God, that, excuse me, that God would cause Abraham and Sarah uh, to have a kid, and through them they were going to bless the world. This is when he's 75, and he didn't have um, Isaac until he was 100, 20. Five years. So let, let's just start with these determining circumstances that aren't really determining circumstances at all. If you think to yourself, I don't expect God to keep his promises in the midst of my circumstances um, because they're so hard, I just want to remind you of all the hard things uh, through which God has kept his promises. Here's one. When childlessness, when childlessness is its own trial, Abraham and Sarah. kept his promise. When, um, <laughs> in light of Thanksgiving, uh, when family drama works to destroy your dreams. This is the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Joseph has a dream <clears throat> about his family and how he's going to uh, not only rule over them, but be a help to them in some way. And they're like, oh no, that's not going to happen. Being the little brother, the older brothers did what they do to little brothers, picked them up and threw them in a pit, sold them into slavery, you know, all the things that we always wanted to do to our little brothers. They actually did those things. And yet, somehow, God wove the thread of Joseph's circumstances into the tapestry of Joseph's life such that he was bringing redemption for his people in that. When your family drama that you're thinking, oh, this is going to destroy the dreams that God's given me. No, 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 that's not how that works. In fact, God may very well use that. He may very well use that to, to, to bring this about. How about this one? When you never achieve what you've worked all your life for. Well, circumstances, my circumstances are hard. What if you're Moses? And, and you spend 40 years in Egypt and then 40 years in the wilderness and in the last 40 years leading this rebellious, hard-hearted, ignorant, stubborn people through the wilderness, saw all these incredible miracles and all they're doing is the whole time. You're working your entire life for this and then what happens? He got to see the promised land, but he didn't get to go in. Did, did that change the promise of God to, no, not at all. I'm going to lead you to a land of milk and honey. That's exactly what God did. How about this one? Um, when you have failed again and again and again and again and again. The whole book of Judges. Where the people of God forgot God, and then an oppression came, and then God raised up to deliver, and they lived at peace. And this cycle just goes over and over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And some of our lives have that same kind of cycle where we forget what God has said, forget what he said is best, forget how much he loves us, forget who he's declared himself to be, forget who he has declared us to be. And so we seek our value and our worth and our satisfaction and our affection and our uh, uh, approval from all of these other places. In doing so, we commit idolatry of our own making. And then we fall away from the Lord and God uses these circumstances to, uh, and, and, and um, this kind of disciplinary action to bring us back to him when you failed over and over and over. Um, here's another one. When your job doesn't work out like you think it ought to, uh, when your job situation is not exactly how you dreamed it up. That, see, David was anointed to be king over Israel, but yet the problem was there was a king over Israel 
His name was Saul. And so what did David have to do? He had to wait. He had to wait. He had to wait. Here's another one um, involving David. When, when your kids make different choices, choices that you wouldn't want them to make. David, even though he was imperfect, even though he had a, a you know, pretty terrible uh, failure um, in terms of its impact not only on his family but the nation of Israel, um, the Bible still calls him a man after God's own heart. And yet Solomon, in all of his success, building the temple, this glorious thing, did what? His heart was turned away from God. And it ended up splitting, uh, splitting the kingdom. When your kids make different uh, choices than you would. How about this one? When society uh, is going to hell in a handbasket all around you here. When they just greased up the slip and slide straight to the pit, man, and shing, off they go. Uh, the book of Amos. We could have picked any of those Old Testament prophets, but the book of Amos. That's the one I just finished reading not too long ago. where he looks at some of the women and says, you're a bunch of cows. How about that? Brutal. You don't, you don't want to know what he said about the men. I mean, but it just brutal. Brutal. He just, and yet, in the middle of, in the middle, listen to that, in the middle of, of Amos are this, we've got these couple of promises here that God's going to still bring righteousness and justice on the earth. Uh... How about this one? When, when, the, when the discipline of God puts you distant from him. Uh, this is the exile where uh, the people of um, Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, a couple hundred years apart, 150 years apart still, but uh, they both go into exile. They both are removed from the land of Israel and from Jerusalem and from temple worship. They're removed from there because God said, hey, you, are, um, you, are, you, need, you need to be distant from me right now in order to kind of cleanse yourself from this uh, idolatry. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, what do we have? Even in the midst of this exile, even in the midst of this distance, what do we have? God saying to his people through Jeremiah, oh, I know, I know that I have plans for them, plans to prosper them, bring them a future, not to harm them, that they might have what? Hope. They can have hope. God's faithfulness fuels our hope. Just a couple more here. Uh, the people of the uh, exile come back. If you were here with us last year, we studied the book of Nehemiah. That, that is, and, and Ezra is the book before then. Um, and Ezra comes back as a priest and he works to rebuild the temple. The, the problem is, is that the temple that they built was not nearly as awesome as the temple that was. And so I wrote it this way. When the glory that was isn't the glory that is. When you try to rep, when, when, the, when the, the good old days really are the good old days, and today is hard. But when you had something outstanding and it crumbled before your eyes and now you've got a shell of what used to be. Or this one, when silence is the only response. Maybe the hardest page in the Bible is the page between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Because that page represents 400 years of the people calling out to God and God going like this. Four hundred 
Some of you have been in that situation where you've called out to God. And it just seems so silent. 400 years. And all you do, all you can do in that moment is hold on to the very last thing that God said that, and the last verse of the Old Testament is about God raising up one in the spirit of Elijah. I'm going to send you one in the spirit of Elijah. And you're just holding on, holding on, holding on to that for 400 years. See, when we talk about God being faithful and his faithfulness fueling our hope, we're not talking about um, promises that come, you know, kind of in the clouds and stuff. We're talking about promises delivered by God into very difficult circumstances and then promises fulfilled by God through very difficult circumstances. That's a reason for our hope. You and I have reason for hope in the midst of our worst circumstances and in the midst of our most profound fears. Why? Because God is faithful. God now in, in this part of the story is, is subversively and kind of conspiratorially moving on the scene to fulfill his promises and to accomplish his plan. God's faithfulness fuels our hope. Last thing is that God is faithful to his plan. He's faithful to his plan. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High God. Zechariah speaking to his son, John the Baptist. You, you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High God, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin. What is God doing here? He's being faithful to his plan because he's, he's putting on the scene this voice that says, hey, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And in fact, if you look in my Bible, one page over, at the book, uh, excuse me, at Luke chapter 3, look at verse 4. Luke 3, 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's talking about John the Baptist here. And because John has, is the voice, God said at the end of the Old Testament, hey, listen, I'm going to break the silence with the voice that says, prepare the way of the Lord. And guess what happened? God broke the silence with the voice that said, prepare the way of the Lord. He's faithful. He is faithful to his plan. He brings on the scene. There is a voice who prepared the way for the Lord's coming. And then finally, look at verse 78. There is a Savior that comes. Because, listen to this, listen to this, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So why did, why did the Savior come? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And this picture of the sun coming up and us being able to see. So Jesus comes to us so that we can see who God is and what he has done to give light, verse 79, to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Listen, he not only gives us light, but he guides us. And because he has been faithful all the way along to his people, and because he's been faithful to every promise that he's ever made and will be faithful to every promise that he makes, that he's faithful to bring about his plan, you and I can have hope. Well, no matter what we're facing, no matter what our circumstances are, you and I have a reason to have hope. We can look at the faithfulness of God and we can let that fuel
I'm going to pray. And I know that there are folks here that are really struggling with that right now. So I'm going to pray and just ask God to speak continually to us. And man, if we can pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, just make your way back there to the table. We'd be happy to pray with you about um, the things that are going on, and then we'll um, uh, sing some more and take up our offering. Okay, let, let's, let's pray.